0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Some of us have been reading through Ajahn Chah's book Food for the Heart and tonight looking at chapter 16 he talks in this chapter about what he calls the keys to liberation. It's really important for us, not just in terms of understanding the Buddhist teachings, but just really understanding our own place in this world, that whether we've ever articulated it this way or not, we're all interested in stress or suffering or difficulty. And... And this is the important piece, the ending of that. So it's not just that we're interested in the pain in life or the difficulty in life. Naturally, we're interested in the release from whatever difficulty, stress, oppression that we experience in life. And even though this is like obvious in some way, it's good to remind ourselves that like how relevant that is, that, you know, life, which is so busy often, and there are so many things to attend to, that actually this is the most relevant thing. That in my life, the most relevant thing is that sometimes, being in life, I experience stress. I experience feeling oppressed or weighed down or burdened by the life I'm living. And sometimes I don't feel oppressed or burdened by the life I'm living. And you see why that should be so relevant? Because it begs it the question, is there some way, am I just helpless so that whether I'm feeling oppressed by life or feeling free and happy in life, that that's just a random occurrence and there's really nothing I can do about it? Or do we have some sense, however faint, that how the mind is, how the mind's relating, what the mind is doing has a lot to do with whether in any given moment we're feeling burdened, entangled, depressed, heavy, or we're feeling free and loving and skillful. And without that basic sense that the experience of stress and the release from stress is relevant, and it's relevant because what the mind is doing, like what our mind is doing right now, how it's relating, that it really is relevant. It's not. We can't really be a practitioner until we have that kind of interest. Because it's what turns our attention, you know, normally, the way we're conditioned is to be attentive <coughs> to the things around us, the food we can eat, the people we're attracted to, the danger we sense. But once we have this intuition, we start the attention, the mind itself starts to turn back in on itself. It becomes interested in itself because it has some faint intuition that what the mind is doing is relevant to this experience of stress or freedom from stress. It's not just whether my partner's treating me the way I want to be treated that causes me stress or frees me from stress, but what my mind's doing about that experience, that relationship. And you see also how much this has to do with a sense of personal responsibility for our well-being instead of the habit of blaming, blaming it on our upbringing blaming it on the people around us maybe we blame everybody including god nature but uh, the way the buddha taught it's really about self-reliance like sure i mean it's true that we're all we all have different circumstances and some of us some of us at least at times have really difficult circumstances i'm sure you know and i know people who have really difficult circumstances And we probably know people who have relatively good or favorable or pleasant circumstances. But regardless of the circumstances that you or me or anybody we know faces, it really matters how the mind understands those circumstances, how it's relating to those circumstances. We could be in a really difficult situation, loss of job, loss of a partner, loss of our health. And we could make it exponentially worse if we related to it in a particular way. Or we could make it tolerable and maybe even okay if we related to it in another way. We've all seen people in difficult circumstances who, in that moment at least, for a moment, related in a way where they weren't oppressed by really difficult circumstances. And we've probably also seen people in relatively pleasant or easeful circumstances who were really oppressed by life, their life, felt really burdened, even though you know they have that sort of beauty and intelligence and good fortune and you know all the so called good circumstances, and yet they're really suffering. So this is really at the heart. It's at the heart of this chapter. And it's at the heart of, really, spiritual practice, generally, and in particular, the teachings of the Buddha and following this path of mindful, you know, being mindful in order to liberate the mind from its habits of constructing stress. And this is sort of provocative, this idea that the mind is behind the suffering we experience. Because it seems so obvious that I'm suffering because I'm sick. It's not so obvious that we're suffering because we don't like being sick. There's a difference. Do we actually have to suffer because we're experiencing the painful sensations of being sick? You know, when you have the pressure in your sinuses or the runny nose or the headache or the achy joints or, you know, whatever we tend to experience when we get sick. Is there anything inherent in unpleasant sensations? That requires the mind to be suffering the mind to feel cheated or burdened or you know betrayed by life I don't think so but we tend to fall into that whenever outside circumstances or a particular way that we've been taught are not good then we feel we should personally feel burdened by that but these habits can be abandoned and it's really, you know, it's really what this practice is about. In this chapter, Arjun Cha describes something that's really central to this, or to the teachings of the Buddha generally, but specifically to the what's called the Thai Forest tradition, sort of a more recent reformation in Theravada Buddhism that started in the early 1900s with a couple of monks as... Uh, Thailand, the people of Thailand, the king and powers that be in Thailand were dealing with the colonial powers there in the early 1900s. They used the Buddhist faith or religion or um, institution really uh, to sort of help them become, help build a sense of nationalism to stave off, you know, the British Empire and all the different colonial forces. So they turned Buddhism into a a national institution, and uh, you know that doesn't really work with spiritual practice. To bureaucratize uh, a religion or a, in any institution, so it makes a lot of sense that there was this sort of Reformation movement in the early 1900s, kind of a back to the basics movement. Monks, having studied the teachings of the Buddha, and then looking at the institution. That was created by the powers that be, and realized there was a big disconnect. So they headed back off into the woods. Back then, you know, there's still a lot of jungle, a lot of w- forests in Thailand, not so much today. And uh, they did what the, Buddha, the monks and nuns and other practitioners at the time of the Buddha did, which is they started to wander about in remote areas where it was really quiet, and they took up the practice in the way the Buddha suggested. The Buddha wasn't really asking people to do a lot of study of texts. He was asking people to study their minds, to get interested in the mind, to develop a balanced attention, a balanced state of mind in order to investigate the mind itself, to observe the mind itself, and to have a continuous awareness of the mind. So we don't, not just when we're sitting, But all day long, the mind is knowing the mind. And this is the one thing we never do. We're so busy doing all the tasks, brushing our teeth, buying food, eating food, cleaning up after ourselves, worrying about this, planning that, talking to people about this and that, that we can live for decades, I mean, Probably the great majority of people, let alone our own, you know, here we are, people who are actually interested in being mindful of the mind, but even those of us in the room, how often do we do that? Let alone the people who aren't, you know, haven't signed up for a Buddhist class or come to a Buddhist meditation center. You really can go a long time without systematically investigating the mind, and not investigating the mind by reading a book about the mind, but the mind from the subjective point of view. There is something happening. It's been happening since there was awareness. But have we been interested in it? And and not only that, so that's what these folks did. And one of the ways then this teaching that got shared, and it's really coming out of the te- teachings of the Buddha, but it's a unique somewhat unique way of describing it that I find very helpful. So as we use the mind to know the mind, there are two things that become pretty obvious. The first thing is very obvious, and I pointed it out in the guided meditation. You know, So as we're taking the attention and sort of noticing the present moment, one of the first things we notice is that things are coming and going. sound of my voice, the meaning that arises because of the words I'm speaking, that meaning comes and goes. If all the meaning that arose from all the words I've spoken already tonight didn't go away, it would be hard to do anything with your mind. But because, you know, I say a word like word, you know, and that meaning, what does it do? It flashes, you hear the sound, And then the sound goes away, and almost at exactly the same time, the meaning of the word, word, arises in your mind, you know, based on your memory, your experience with that word in the past, right? But that also flashes and goes away too, doesn't it? It doesn't just stay there. And you see somebody, and there's that visual experience, which is there for a moment, and goes away, and then the meaning that arises with that visual experience, that comes and goes. And how many physical sensations have you had since you sat down tonight? You know, almost an infinite number, right? But they've come and gone. That's why it's easy to be clearly aware of the next moment of the ache in the knee or the next moment of the cool air against the skin because all of the other previous moments of physicality have come and gone. We miss this. But if you get this instruction, you know, which is really one of the primary instructions from the Buddha. The Buddha, when you read through the volumes of recorded talks of the Buddha, probably as much as anything he was encouraging people to notice that phenomena of the body and mind come and go. And you know, intellectually go, God, I know that. I know things come and go. But it's one thing to know it intellectually, and it's another thing to observe it directly. Because it helps the mind get to know the mind. So as I was saying a minute ago, in the Thai Forest tradition, they talk about the mind in two ways. There's the conditioning. And whatever conditioning we're talking about, whether it's physical or mental, it has the characteristic to come and go. It's in movement. It's moving. And when the mind is identified with any condition, I'm identified with the sound. So it's not just the sound being known. There's a sense that I'm hearing that sound. I'm feeling that sensation in my body. When there's an identification or attachment to any of the phenomena that come and go, I'm thinking, I'm remembering, I don't like, I like, then... The mind the only thing the mind knows is the coming and going in a way the mind becomes trapped in this one aspect of the mind which is the conditioned mind that what comes and goes the more we have some wisdom in the mind in, in Buddhist sense in a Buddhist sense wisdom means the wisdom of non-attachment I mean there's different ways to talk about wisdom One way is to talk about an understanding that develops in the mind that understands that it's not necessary for the mind to be attached, to be identified with the phenomena that are coming and going. And we already know this. I mean, you may not understand the words I'm speaking, but I guarantee you know this experience, because there are some times when you've experienced your mind very much attached to whatever you're seeing or thinking. You know, the mind is strongly attached. It's strongly clinging. It's strongly defending something. And there are other times when the mind is much more equanimous, less attached. And you'll experience that. That's a different kind of experience than when we're really attached, taking things very personally, and when the mind is relatively unattached, not identified, not taking things personally. And it starts to point out or allow us to intuit, allow the mind to intuit this other aspect of the mind that doesn't come and go. So there's the conditioned and the unconditioned. There's the activity of the mind, and then there's the mind itself, you could say. The activity of the mind is everything that's coming and going. Now, like right now is a good time to reflect. In fact, the only time we can reflect on this is in the present moment. So, this moment is as good as any moment because in this moment, if this if this way of uh, the Buddha and the Thai forest masters like Gotcha Cha, if this way actually aligns with the way it is, the truth of things, then it should be available. To any human being that reflects in this way they should be able to recognize that this teaching corresponds with the direct experience so let's check that out now and later as we go home and we're just taking opening to the present moment and by the way the present moment you know this what we call this present moment or our experience here and now this is mind that has these two qualities so when I talk about the mind that has these two qualities coming and going and the unconditioned what doesn't come and go I'm talking about this experience right here because this experience is happening where where is this experience happening what's happening in the mind right now here you could say, well, we're at this corner of 27th Avenue and 26th Street in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is in the United States of America on planet Earth, you know, the, what, is it, what are we, the fourth planet from the star called the sun. And, but all of that are thoughts in the mind. And then we could say, what do you mean thoughts in the mind, you know? This is the Earth here, and that, what's that well, that's touching. Where's that touching being known? It's being known in the mind. The thought that I'm on earth is a thought in the mind. All of this is just something arising and being known in the mind. Now that's a, itself is kind of a little startling. You, many of you have heard me say this time and time again, but it it hopefully brings up a, more respect for the present moment because there's a certain humility when we realize how much we rely on our thought about This world being out there. But actually, there's only here. There's no in here, out there. There's just this. And this is a mind experience. Whether you like it or not, we can only have mind experiences. So as we get interested in this mind experience, this one thing, it's only one thing now. Like in any moment, are there two things? There's just one thing. This. And there's two ways to, like, two facets of this. Noticing the changing nature of this. And when you get really good at noticing the changing nature and letting the changing nature be changing, like not trying to slow it down or speed it up or control it in any way, so making peace or being equanimous with the changing nature, then the mind can begin to intuit the other aspect of the mind, or the present moment, which we can call the unconditioned, or the mind itself, or freedom. But we don't really understand freedom until we first make peace with the conditions that are coming and going. So another way to say this is, the reason we don't really understand the mind is we haven't, first of all, we haven't recognized that everything's coming and going. And we haven't recognized it, and we haven't, the heart, the mind hasn't learned to be peaceful with things coming and going, with sensations coming and going, thoughts coming and going, emotions coming and going, sights and sounds coming and going. What we do, what we're really good at, is struggling in different ways with what's coming and going. And you know, the obvious ways we struggle, just to categorize it. When something pleasant is coming and going, we struggle by trying to make it last. And when something unpleasant is coming and going, we struggle by trying to get rid of it or make it, you know, not see it. And when it's when when it's boring what's coming and going, or neutral, we try not to be there, not to notice, because it's not important, it's neutral, it's ordinary. So We're in the habit of not being intimate and equanimous. We're in the habit of reacting and struggling with what comes and goes. And that struggling, that attachment or clinging or grasping, those are the words we often use in Buddhist practice, that tendency to be identified and struggling and attached and grasping and aversive, it keeps us from understanding the full nature of the heart or mind. Because we're always in this struggling mode. And you can imagine, it makes a lot of sense, that when we're in this struggling reactive mode, resistant mode, it distorts the perception of the mind. So the first thing we have to do, and that's when we come to quiet places, to develop the skill. You know, you sit in a quiet corner of your home or you come to a place like common ground and you sit or we sit because we need a relatively simple environment to begin with especially we need a relatively simple environment to practice being wide open to the present moment to this which is changing right so we're not trying to make it different than that we're not trying to create a like not to have things change, but we're actually trying to become really open to the changing nature of experience and just let it happen. And that's why, like, not only do you come to a quiet place, sometimes you use a a neutral object, like the breath is a common meditation object in Buddhist practice. It's simple, it's relatively easy to notice. And then... What do we do well we're not here to control the breath when we're doing mindfulness of breathing practice we're here to be clearly aware to be intimate with the breath but we're practicing letting it be what it is what is it it's nature and what's the quality or what's the main characteristic of nature it moves right and that's what happens with the breath it moves and i'm sure you've discovered it's not so easy to just let the breath move Have you noticed? It's not easy to be interested in it. And then when we are interested in it, it's not easy to just let it be. If we're going to be interested in it, we want to control it. I mean, generally, that's how the mind is. The habit mind, the conditioned mind is, whatever we look at, whatever we notice, we control. And basically, we don't notice things unless they're either pleasant or unpleasant. We notice something pleasant. And we try to control it by making it last, making it mine. And if we notice something unpleasant, we try to control it by making it go away or fixing it so it's not so unpleasant. And we uh, avoid noticing what's neutral because it's neutral. it's not doesn't seem to us to be relevant to myself because I'm interested in what's pleasant and unpleasant. With mindfulness practice, we're interested in everything from the pleasant end through the neutral to the unpleasant. Everything matters equally in a sense, right? Because everything, neutral, unpleasant, pleasant, moves. It comes and goes. And what we're learning is to let everything come and go. And to o- the only way to learn to let everything come and go is to be right in the middle of that coming and going. There's none of this like getting on some lofty point and observing the world that's coming and going over there. We sit right in the middle of it, right in the middle of the experience of the body. All the sensations, we just feel them coming and going. The monkey mind, swirling, moving, emotions, content, coming and going. We see that. Sounds like even even when you come to a quiet place, there's so many different sounds. People sneezing and adjusting their posture and traffic outside and you know so even in a quiet place like this there's so much activity of sight and sound and sensation and thought and emotion and we sit right in the middle of it and we learn slowly through a lot of persistence a lot of starting over we learn that the mind is able to let everything come and go and through that long difficult process for most people where you finally learn, slowly, over time, gradually, over time, to be steady in the middle of this mind-body experience, letting everything be the way that it is, which is moving, then you start experiencing what we call samadhi, or concentration, or the unification of the mind. So now the mind is in the middle of everything that's coming and going, but it's not being pushed around by what's coming and going. It's there. Memories still arise. They come, they go. But the mind's not thinking about the memories that come and go. Somebody might make a lot of noise. And you might even, out of habit, get angry. But that sound of that person moving comes and goes. The anger arises and passes away without the mind reacting, picking it up and proliferating around it. Everything is coming and going. But there's a stillness now you see where we're starting to intuit the other side the other facet of the mind so the more that the mind is steady in the world of everything coming and going the more the mind begins to intuit a stillness or a silence or an emptiness or whatever you want to call it space that's unaffected by what's coming and going initially we're oblivious to the whole thing then through practice, we get aware that everything's coming and going. Then slowly, gradually, the mind has insight into a stillness, a space, a silence, an emptiness that is unaffected by the th- everything coming and going. And then the mind gets interested in that. right? And this leads to the deeper insight into the nature of the mind. This facet of the mind that has been missed for a long time because of the mind's fixation or obsession, reactive reactivity with what's coming and going. Because the mind is so involved in what's coming and going, taking it personally, reacting to it with greed and aversion, it misses something that's been here, always been here. And it's the awakening to this that leads to real freedom. Because... As our minds begin to awaken to this other aspect of the mind to the unconditioned then it transforms the heart the mind's relationship to the condition initially what's our relationship to the conditioned world stuff that comes and goes we take it all personally and we're attached and it's all heavy that makes life heavy that attachment but we can't help but take it personally because it feels personal, but the more we realize this other aspect of the mind, the more we understand what comes and goes as nature, not as self. Pain feels like my pain, but it's because of this not understanding the mind that pain feels like my pain. When you act out in a way that disturbs me, it feels personal. You know, if somebody yawned in a really big obvious way right now, it would feel personal to me. Like what, you don't like to talk? <laughs> or something. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. But I might feel that. I mean, and but it's not personal. Like that reaction is not personal. It's just what comes and goes. And things come and go lawfully due to conditions, the way the mind was conditioned. Well I didn't do that conditioning. Nobody did it. Nature did that conditioning. This is all the unfolding of nature, this interdependent coming and going of an infinite number of causes and conditions. That's what this all is, this aspect of the mind, the conditioned aspect. It's just stuff coming and going, lawfully. So when we begin to intuit that peaceful presence, that stillness, that silence, then the mind gets interested in that, and it begins to have insight. Into the empty, full, free nature of the mind. You could say mind or heart with a capital M or capital H, versus the activity of the mind, the activity of the moment. So you could, if you don't like the word mind, you can use present moment. There's the activity of the present moment and the empty, timeless presence of the present moment. Or whatever, words are never going to be quite adequate here but what does make sense and comes out of our direct experience is this process that I've described which is first getting intrigued by the teachings oh I could use my mind to be interested in the mind what is the mind and then you realize well there's all I know is this you know there's just this so now instead of getting interested in what I like or don't like I'm interested in this, the present moment. And as soon as we just start being mindful of the present moment, we realize how difficult it is because everything's coming and going. And we realize that our inability to be equanimous, to be clearly aware in a relaxed way with everything coming and going, is really at the heart of our stress and suffering. So even right at the beginning, It makes a lot of sense to want to be mindful. Forget about these deeper insights I've been talking about in the last few minutes. Just that um, being intrigued by the possibility of being right in the middle of the storm of our life, you know, and to not just having to be physically still, although we practice initially sitting still, but the idea is to be moving about, doing whatever we do in life, but equanimous not being pushed around by what comes and goes. The Buddha described this in terms of the eight worldly wins. Praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pleasant experience and unpleasant experience. I'm missing one set of two. Let's see. Gain and loss. That's the fourth set. So we have gain and loss, pleasant and unpleasant, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. So just as a description of, you know, the, the, the different experiences that we have in life. And when we take those eight things personally, we get have that experience of being personally pushed around, personally stressed out by the movements of life. So it makes a lot of sense that we're just we want to develop this steadiness to be right in the middle. And it makes sense, like any time we're learning something, it makes sense. Well, if you really want to master something, start where it's easy, where you have some success. So you find a quiet spot. You know, Traditionally, the nuns, the monks, they'd go off into the woods. They'd go get their food early in the morning. They'd have their one meal of the day. Then, you know, by 9 o'clock or whenever they're done and cleaned up from their meal, they've got the rest of the day just the practice and they'd sit and they'd walk and they'd sit and they'd walk and they'd sit and they'd walk but what they were really practicing doing is being right in the middle of their experience and learning how to be steady and what teaches us how to be steady because every time we see the mind beginning to grasp beginning to resist beginning to react beginning to proliferate we notice it's stressful right it's like uh, we get burnt in this chapter, Acha uses this description of red hot iron. You know, whatever object the mind gets involved with, it's like touching there's no way you can pick up that red hot metal without burning yourself. But it's not the objects of our experience that are coming and going that are red hot. It's the attachment, it's the reactivity itself that's burning hot. So the mind learns through trial and error to leave everything alone. We leave the personality alone. It's not a negation of the personality, it's a non attachment of the personality. It's not a negation of the body, it's a non attachment to the body. And this is misunderstood that Buddha learned this the hard way. You know, in a lot of spiritual traditions, including uh, at the time of the Buddha, asceticism was a big deal. You know, in torturous ways, people over the centuries have practiced a set set of practices, and the Buddha rejected that, that he tried it, and he rejected that. Somehow negating the body does not lead to freedom. It leads to an uh, emaciated body. It doesn't lead to liberation or freedom when you abuse the body or neglect the needs of the body. And there's a big turning point, you know, in terms of the legends or the stories of the Buddha where he left his buddies who he was doing these extreme ascetic practices with and ate some milk rice pudding. Some of you know if you go to Indian restaurants even today, one of the delicious dishes is this, you know, cooking rice with milk and honey and little cardamom and toasted almonds. <laughs> So I don't know what, if that's what he got, but something like that, you know, <laughs> not something that you would eat if you were into extreme fasting, where he described eating one grain of rice per day, or extreme practice like that. You know, he had a nice, delicious bowl, regained his strength, and felt really good. Felt like the mind-body was in balance, and that, that before this, what really turned him away from ascetic practices is he remembered a time when he was a little kid and his mind naturally fell in to samadhi, to the unification of mind, you know, where, and it was during like a festival day, his dad was sort of a chief of a local fiefdom, little feudal state in northern India, so he was a big deal, his father was a big deal, and evidently in the spring there was some kind of Plowing festival day, you know, where people would turn the fields over and plant the seeds and things like that. And so it was celebratory, and they had the little baby prince there somewhere under a nice tree in the shade, leaving him alone so the adults could do whatever they're doing. And because of all the probably fun activity, the Buddhist mind fell into a nice organic state of unification. And this happens. Actually, it's an important lesson here. That state of unification or samadhi happens best when we're happy, not when we're unhappy. So keep that in mind. When you sit down to meditate and you're a grump, it's not going to be so easy to practice. But if you sit down in an appropriate way for an appropriate length of time, and you have beautiful things that your mind finds beautiful around you, whether it's looking out a beautiful window or a beautiful statue of the Buddha or a candle, or whatever it is for you that uh, sort of is pleasant for the mind. And you reflect on how grateful you are. In the great scheme of things, there aren't too many human beings that have the time to sit for 30 minutes. And so fortunate that you have that time to look at the heart directly, to look at the mind directly. Now, that's a beautiful mind state, as opposed to like, oh, I've got to do my meditation. or. That being in a funk is not the way to start your practice because it's a very seductive state that generally leads to (coughs) proliferation. You know, thinking that doesn't go anywhere but to more thinking. So the baby Buddha, you know, the Buddha to be, was sitting there in a happy state in the mind because it had no worries, no greed, no reversion. It naturally, organically unified, and he had an experience of the mind being very clear, content, vividly present, because there was nothing in the way of the mind's vivid presence. And uh, so then, whatever that was, 20, let's see, he had his big insight when he was 35, and maybe he was 4 at the time, so 31 years later, or something like that, the Buddha remembers this time as a little boy and his beautiful mind state that arose and the thought arose in his mind maybe that's a powerful support for the awakening that I seek the insight that I seek right because he was he, he knew at that point very much that the cause for suffering wasn't out in the world it was in it's in our mind in the heart and so he remembered that and he said I'm wondering if that state of mind is going to be the powerful support for the mind to see what it needs to see. And then the answer came loud and clear in his mind, yes, that's the way. And so then from that point on, he he used that beautiful balance of mind. He found different ways and taught over the years different ways for human beings to cultivate and maintain that balanced state of attention, where the mind is really vividly alert, bright, but also profoundly tranquil and relaxed. So both of those, and sometimes we think of those as being opposites, but it's not true. The mind can be, on the one hand, very bright, very alert, interested, and at the same time, content and relaxed and at ease, both the mind and body, actually. So the Buddha cultivated that state, and then as he did that he was able to be perfectly at peace with everything that came and came and went, including his all his own inner demons. And so if you've read about the Buddha's time under the Bodhi tree, you know, this famous night where the Buddha had his deep insight, you know, not only did he have to deal with creepy crawlers and mosquitoes and achy knees and backs and you know all the things that you might imagine, but as the stillness deepened all of the conditioned patterns of the mind in a sense got frightened that you know, it's like the, the game is gonna be up, you know, the Buddha's gonna see through kind of the neurotic tendencies. So the neurotic tendencies rallied their forces, as often happens, like when we get quiet, you go away to a quiet cabin by yourself, <clears throat> you know, with you think you have this romantic idea, I'm just gonna sit and meditate. Well, it gets really intense. I don't know if any of you have done that or gone on camping trips all alone, being in the wilderness alone. The mind gets really trippy. A lot of stuff starts to come up. And it's not just like, I'm not sure I want to be with myself. There's a very funny story, poignant story, by um, Jack Kerouac. Um, I forget what book it's in. But uh, it's a time when he was uh, he got a job uh, on a fire tower in the Cascades, probably in Washington State. And uh, he thought, uh, this is the deal. You know, I've got the whole summer. No one's going to bother me. I've got my books. I've got my meditation practice. And he describes as his big discovery was realizing all hateful me, right? Because whatever conditioned habits we have, when we get alone with ourselves in a quiet environment especially for days on end what we see more than anything is we see the conditioned habits of the mind we see the restlessness of the mind we see the aversive nature of the mind the greedy nature of the mind the distracted nature of the mind all of those things become loud and clear because we can't run anywhere normally we don't see it in daily life because when things start getting difficult you know we make a phone call or we go get something to eat or we change the channel or we do something different but when you're alone in a really stripped-down environment a lot of those distractions aren't available so those demons arose for the Buddha you know and they described in metaphorical really beautiful me- metaphorical details of the you know the different horrific beasts that attacked him and seductive forces that attacked him but he saw everything as nature that comes and goes he his mind didn't take any of that personally. And so then with that profound steadiness, that unshakable steadiness, clear and relaxed mind, he took it and got interested in the mind itself. And then through a series of insights, he awoke to the empty nature, the, the profoundly impersonal nature of the mind, of nature itself. And then that changed his, forever, changed his relationship to things that come and go. So that, so much so that attachment wouldn't be possible anymore. Even with the exactly most seductive situation, no attachment would arise. I mean, at least, you know, I, we don't know the Buddha, so we're just taking it based on the story, right? But as a story, it's a very convincing story that somebody doing this kind of work that because we already know that we can go from being a person who's really attached to a lot of things to being a person who's not so much attached to not so many things right we already know that there's a play there well if we can go from here to here what's to stop a human being from developing this non-attachment to the nth degree so this is I'll, i'll leave it here so that we can hear from other people in the group, and maybe you have some questions or experiences from your own practice you'd like to share around these two aspects of the mind, realizing the conditioned nature of the mind, that everything is coming and going, sights and sounds and thoughts and sensations. And whatever your experience is, realizing a stillness, a spaciousness, a silence, an emptiness, that remains unstained and unaffected by what comes and goes. And how both of them define this moment, this. It's not like somewhere else. Both are right here. The movement of nature is right here, ceaselessly moving. And the empty, still, silent space is here, ceaselessly being what it is. And they're not different. Or they're not separate, I guess. So I'll leave it here. It would be nice to hear from people. Any questions you have, comments, what comes to mind? Yeah, say your name. going to just let life kill us or run us over. Yeah. Well, first of all, just from your own experience, I would imagine there are some days where the forces, the things that are moving at work, you really viscerally feel thrown around by the different forces that are coming at you, right? And some days, less so. So what makes the days that are really tough, tough, and the days that are less tough, less tough? I mean, do you see how the attitude in the mind is a factor? I mean, certainly sometimes the external circumstances are more tough or less tough. But let's just say the same external circumstances. But sometimes the mind can tolerate it more than other days. So we're getting really interested in what that is. What is that wisdom that allows the mind to be more resilient? There's a whole study in psychology about resilience and what that is. And in Buddhism, or spiritual practices, are taking this to the extreme, like what makes the heart, the mind, perfectly resilient, immune to what comes and goes. So instead of feeling like, well, I'm just going to let nature run me over, it's more like learning how to be completely porous or transparent. So the forces are still there, right? because we haven't done anything to change right now at least, the external circumstances, they're still there, but the mind isn't taking it personally. So whatever comes, comes. And the mind is not is also not stopping the organic response to what's coming at us. But it's now it's not coming out of fear or resistance. It's coming out of fearlessness and love. So when we respond... This, the response might be more skillful, whether it's our response of silence, or standing up and saying something, or stepping out of the way, or you know, blocking something. Because we're not telling ourselves how to handle it. What we're doing is we're emphasizing the understanding, not the strategy. So you have to do two things on your job, at your job from a relative point of view you have to learn how to handle like to be skillful but because we understand enough we have some humility about that how far that can take us you know you might develop really a lot of skills and still feel thrown around at work but we can develop this other thing so first we do the best we can but as we're doing the best we can we're developing we're transforming our whole understanding Not just about work, but about this experience, life. Where we're letting, we're understanding that life, or this, is nature. It's the movement of nature. It's not personal. So there you are at work, a really difficult situation. But now it's not happening to anybody. You still care about it. Because not caring would be a personal thing to do. I'm out of here. I don't care about this. You can't hurt me. That's a very personal strategy. And a lot of times when people hear that we don't take it personal, they think that's what we're doing, is we're taking it impersonally. But that's a personal stance, too. It really depends on this realization that I've described, where as we learn to be steady, and for you, initially, the insights are going to come from work. You're just going to learn to survive work. The insight's going to come when your experience is a little bit less seductive, less... Uh, intense, like sitting at home, walking in the woods. Then, when the experience is more neutral, then you can develop confidence in just letting things come and go, and the skill and the wisdom that allows you to be undefended. And as you get that in your bones in more safe settings, then it will just start leaking into your way of being at work in surprising ways. And the key is you're not going to figure it out. It's not something that the ego does. It's not like that level of a strategy. You still want those kind of strategies just to help cope. But the ultimate strategy is this other work. But we can't do this other work unless we have some ease in our life. If we're just overwhelmed by a difficult job, it's really hard to do this other work. So if you have to leave the job or Cultivate other times in your life where you're not overwhelmed by what happened at work, that's the time to do this other training. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Casey. Good luck with it. Other thoughts that come to mind? Got a couple minutes left. Maybe examples from your own life where you've learned this? Yeah. I've been doing lots of work around the house. Yeah. And it's uh, almost funny. It's almost like, look, he's going to get angry about this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if people in the back of the room heard, Steve, but it's a really good example. And because it does feel almost like there's another person there, and it's good to, to be able to recognize it as wisdom or equanimity, and that's also a natural force. It also comes and goes. And it arises when there's some steadiness in the practice and it doesn't arise very often when we're not steady in the practice. But the more steady we are, the more there is that sense of space or peace or wisdom that's as if it's another person there who sees the sloppiness of the mind or the tendency to make mistakes, sees the anger that arises, but isn't taking it personally. And that's the thing. It sounds a little schizo that there is the personality that's coming and going and the causes and conditions, external, internal, that are coming and going, and there's something that's not coming and going. But actually, initially, it might feel a little awkward, but actually, it's a perfect integration. The wisdom, the stillness, the emptiness, and the activity, they go together perfectly. It's not a problem. It's only a problem when initially we don't understand what's going on, sort of in the initial stages of the insight as we begin to intuit the sense of equanimity or wisdom or spaciousness that's always there. And this is the important point. It can't be stained. It can't be ruined. It doesn't matter how strongly the anger flares or the sense of being a victim flares or whatever reactive state flares up. You can't ruin this other aspect of the mind. You can only forget it or be distracted from it, but it can't be destroyed or ruined. Just like you can't destroy the motion of nature, you, know, you can't make it stop moving. <laughs> so both are aspects of nature, both the stillness, the emptiness, and the activity. They're just different aspects of nature that fit perfectly together. As a human being, we have problems because our understanding only includes one half. And we're we're living a misperception, basically. But we have to leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. Let's just take a couple seconds. Let go of the words. Take a deep breath together. And then just this sense of a willingness to be a student of the mind. Let it teach us what we need to learn. And may this be a cause for real peace and freedom from suffering in our hearts and in the world. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. Thank you for listening.